Hi, and welcome to Bloody Good Reads. I am your host, Mark Goddard, and we have got yet another amazing guest. We've had, me personally, I've been doing several records at a time, so this has been quite an interesting week, and so many different authors I've been speaking to. you obviously be listening to this every other week, but to me, I've really been enjoying this week. It's been a really good week for Bloody Good Reads. So we've got another amazing author who, last week's guest, Sarah Pimbra, has called the Koontz and King of the New Generation. Uh, his brand new book, Lola on Fire, is out now. And uh, he's come to join us on the podcast to chat about his work and, uh, of course, give us his bloody good reads. So welcome to the podcast, Rio Ewers. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So your brand new book has come out uh, recently, the last few weeks. Today? Perfect. So Today. It's two weeks ago. February 16th. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, two okay, weeks yeah. ago, by the time people start listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Too many book, book, book interviews in one go. <laughs> yeah, no worries. <laughs> what we like to do on Bloody Goodreads is uh, talk to authors from all um, corners of fiction. So thriller, crime, horror, fantasy, stuff I tend to read. And um, just to see how you got into writing, how you first started out. And, uh, of course, we've asked you to bring along three books because I'm mean like that, and that's like, and just making authors pick books seems to be the most heart wrenching thing that they have to do. So, yeah, yeah, it wasn't easy. No, well, at least John Everson cheated and picked four last time, so. All oh, right. <laughs> I won't look at this anymore. <laughs> so, uh, what? I'll start the podcast like I always start, and uh, basically, how did you get into writing? And um, yeah. Well, uh, it's God. It's the most cliche answer, and I've seen it in so many interviews, and, and particularly recently, um, I, I've been writing stories since I was really able to form sentences. Um, mm. I grew up in. in I, I live in Canada now, but I grew up in England, and uh, uh, at school in England, we had uh, what we called exercise books, which was basically basically a notepad lined paper and I used to uh, steal them from the teacher's cupboard when she wasn't looking and I'd you know shove them into my bag and take them home and I'd fill them with stories and it, it was obviously just you know it was a hobby and um but I loved it it was how I spent it was how I spent my my free time you know and I was a kid like eight nine years old and I did it up to sort of 13 14 years old um and then I got a typewriter and I started using the typewriter, but I never really took it. Um, I, I never thought it was anything other than just me having fun writing stories. It, uh, you know, I certainly didn't see a career for myself in writing fiction. I um, didn't dare to dream of anything like that, but it was probably when I was uh, 16 that I started to take it a little bit more seriously. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of pause there because one of my book selections plays into this uh, this okay. story quite quite strongly. So um, yeah, I, you know, I always had a fascination. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I always had a, a fascination with writing stories, and and I used to write all kinds of stories, and they were always very long. And mm. you know, it wasn't like I was just you know, um, I, I used to write stories based on movies that I loved you know I remember writing a story that was kind of a spin-off of the of the movie The Warriors which was mm -hmm. one of my favorite movies when I was younger um and it was sort of yeah it was it was a story a very very bad story obviously but it sort of took place before the events of the movie 
before I even realized that the Warriors was in fact a book by itself. Um, I did an ET story. Um, yeah, just tons and tons. Obviously, I love my own stuff. I had a series of books when I was like 12, 13 called the Hellfire series. There were three of those, all written in school exercise books. And that was about a, uh, a guy who's on the, uh, it was kind of like a Mad Max thing. He, his wife had been killed and he was after the biker gang that took him out, took her out. So, uh, yeah, it's just, it was basically just imitating all of the things I love, which is kind of what I'm still doing now, actually. <laughs> I'm just doing that a little bit better these days. <laughs> I think that's how, it's a good way of doing it. I remember when I first kind of started writing before I didn't do any writing. And I used to kind of be a huge fan of Buffy and Angel. And uh, it was, the Angel TV series, I used to all do like vampire novels, the stories, and all that off the back of that. And uh, you always go with stuff you love. <laughs> but, oh, of uh, course, yeah, yeah. It's important, you know. And I think, I think it's yeah. The imitation is a part of the process, and uh, and eventually you start to develop your own your own style and your own ideas. And um, but yeah, you've got to start off on familiar ground, I think, in order to sort of get up and running. So, what kind of books did you read when you were younger? Because well, I mean, you're, you're, from, you're from over in my part of the woods, so it's uh, always interesting to see what other English authors read when they were kind of. You know, yeah, you know, I didn't read a. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's interesting for me as well because um, over here in in uh, Canada, North America, it's it's sort of a much different, um, or certainly to the to the people I talk of in my own age group, they they didn't used to hmm. read very much of the the same kind of books that I read, but. You know, when I was very young, I used to read a lot of um, the the annuals that used to come out every year. I got mm-hmm. one every Christmas, and uh, and then I'd scrounge around the libraries and, and pick up. So you know, Superman annuals and uh, the, the Man from Atlantis and all those. I'm <laughs> showing how exactly how old I am. And the Gemini Man and the Incredible Hulk. Like, I used to love reading those, and then probably sort of eight or nine, I started to read. Um, uh, horror novels, but like uh, kids' horror novels. I can't even remember the names of any of them because they were written for, for children. And probably around the age of 12, 13, I started to get into the Pan Books of Horror, which yeah. was a big series. And I'm sure a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast are very familiar with the Pan Books of Horror. And they, they, they were quite influential, actually, in, in forming me as a a young wannabe horror writer, and um, yeah, uh, I devoured those. And I used to go to the library and pick up as many of them as I could find at one time. And, and the stories, they just took like 10 minutes to read each story. And of course, you see them in your head as, as like little movies. So yeah, I, I probably didn't read like a full, could you even call it a proper novel, like, you know, a sort of a best-selling novel, I suppose, until I was in my in my early teens, yeah. James Herbert, I think, was the first, uh, The Rats, was the first sort of popular novel I, I read. Mm. Rats seems to be a popular one among a lot of horror and thriller uh, writers. I've had, I think Rats has been recommended three or four times now on this podcast. <laughs> oh, it doesn't surprise uh, me. Yeah. yeah, well, it was, it was everywhere, you know, you go into the... Uh, mm the news agents, you know, in the UK, the, the news agent stores, and, and then you'd go to the supermarkets and it'd be there. And obviously it'd be in WH Smith's and, and John Menzies and on all of them. And it was, it was a quick and easy read, right? It was 200 pages or whatever it was. The cover, like those, those old new England library covers were just so fantastic. 
And though in, yeah, just to see those wrapped, I can still imagine them now, you know, on the cover there. I absolutely bought books when I was younger based on the cover. And, and, and I ended up buying mm-hmm. a lot of those New England Library, James Herbert books and Stephen King books because I love the covers so much. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that doesn't surprise me. And Rats is also, say Rats is also a really good, you know, pulpy, great read. And it's, I can, mm-hmm. I can see how it shaped very, um, many, many writers because of its sort of visceral qualities. Yeah. It's a, it's a great book. Mm-hmm. I could read, I, do you know, I'd probably read it now. I think, God, this doesn't hold up at all. <laughs> but when I was 13, <laughs> I thought it was the best thing in the world. <laughs> It's it's a good book. I actually started reading it off the back of author recommendations on on this podcast. Right. It's, uh, I mean the the scene in they got, got the baby and the dog. That scene is just yeah, yeah, shocking. You, I wouldn't, you wouldn't expect that kind of scene in a book from so far back. It's quite brutal for that time, really. It was kind of a there was a, James Herbert had a style about him. He, he sort of had a a formula to all of his books where, you know, mm. particularly, um, and, and the rats domain lair, they, they all followed that, the, the same formula. And then the dark, um, where you, you know, you've got the rugged hero type who's always referred to by his, his surname and, and his chapters are interspersed with, you know, the next victim of whatever it is, be it, mm. you know, the, the, the fog or the dark or whatever it is, you know, getting, uh, killed in some, you know, new and disgusting way, the rats, whatever it was. And and so it would continue until finally the, the hero wins the day. Uh, and there's always the sexy. And that was what a lot of the kids, you know, <laughs> at my school read James Herbert for was, you know, the sort of lurid, obviously the, the blood and the guts. But when you've got blood, guts and sex in one novel, that's a recipe <laughs> for success right there. <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he knew what he was doing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it's around, around the time the, the literary nasties, it's saying that um, Sean Hudson talked about when he was on. It's yeah, like like the video nasties era. It's, it's all kind of same kind of thing there. I mean, we had when he had slugs and he had the rats and so many books, books yeah. that got banned. It's uh, for me as a horror fan, I love the eighties horror because it was banned and you want to watch it. If something gets banned, you're like, oh, actually, I'm actually quite intrigued. But <laughs> yeah. no, you're 100 right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, being a horror fan in the 1980s was a, was a, an unusual experience because there were so many movies that were banned. And, you know, we had VCRs uh, that were becoming popular in, in the UK and, and movies like The Exorcist was banned and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre was banned and uh, Evil Dead was banned in the UK. Like now you can, you can watch it online. You get kids seven, eight years old could just watch it. Um, and uh, if they wanted to, just find it online and watch it. It's, it's a very different world. But in the 1980s, there was a movie called I Spit on Your Grave that was banned. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it still is in the UK, but uh, that was a movie. No, no, it's, it's, it, uh, it was re-released back in was it, yeah? 2000s, yeah. Right, okay. Clockwork Orange as well. These are movies that, because they were banned, mm-hmm. I just wanted to, more than anything, those were the movies I wanted to see, to see what all the fuss was about. And invariably, I was like, really? You know, it was one scene or, you know, well, mm-hmm. you know movies like I Spill in Your Grave, the content overall is, is enough to, I can see why, <laughs> why it would be banned. But a lot of the time, they didn't fulfill that thing I was looking for in the movie. 
you know, it, I, I didn't see what all the fuss was about. I remember The Evil Dead, someone saying to me, it's the scariest movie you'll ever watch. And I watched it when I was what, 14, 15 years old. And, and I, I thought it was more of a, the whole thing was more of a comedy to me, even yeah. though that first movie wasn't supposed to be a comedy. It just actually made me laugh more than, more than anything else. <laughs> so, yeah. That's The Exorcist for me. I, people keep telling me how well, The Exorcist is the most scariest movie in the world. And I'm just like, I, I, yeah, okay, if you say so. I, not, not my yeah, kind of I thing. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Do you know that, and, so and when, oh God, we could, no, no, carry on, carry on. I'm just going off on no, tangents, no, no, no. which is what I do. You've got to cut me off. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no, 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 I'm, I'm happy. I'm always happy talking films. <laughs> yeah, 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 I hear you. So when did you decide you wanted to be a writer? I mean, when when did you kind of went, no, I'm definitely going to do this? Because you're obviously writing a lot as, as a teenager and, you know, you're enjoying it that way. But what kind of got you into kind of actually being a writer in the first place um well if you want i can i can reference my my first bloody good read if you like um, yeah let's go for it so could, what is your first bloody good read? segue into that um my first bloody good read is christine by stephen king and yeah. i've chosen this book because uh it's a little bit of an anomaly because it it isn't one of my my favorite novels it isn't even one of my favorite Stephen King novels, but it, it had such an impact on me um, when I picked it up at the age of 16. I was, uh, I was a big fan of the movie, and I loved the idea of this car rebuilding itself, and I really loved the idea of this car that played nothing but old like music from the 1950s, and uh, I watched that film over and over again, and, and on my 16th birthday, I remember getting a, uh, a voucher for um, a gift voucher for Asda in the UK. Uh, mm-hmm. And I bought, you know, I had enough money on the voucher to buy an album. I can't remember the album I bought, but I had like maybe three pounds left on the voucher. And I thought, God, I got to get something. What can I pick up? And as I was walking through the store, I saw Stephen King's Christine on the shelf. And I knew it was a book, but I was, you know, obviously enchanted with the film. But what I really loved was the cover, going back to these New England library covers. It was this bright red cover with this uh, 57 Plymouth Furies, like it was driving out of the front cover, headlights shining toward the, the reader. And I thought, oh, man, that, that's, yeah. And it was like £2.50 or something ridiculous, you know, back in you know the 80s. And I, I picked it off the shelf. And the first thing that surprised me about it was how fat the book was. I was used to reading like skinny little paperbacks like the rats and the pan books of horror. And I picked this thing off the shelf and it felt like, you know, it was the weight and the size of like a half brick. And I thought, oh, I'm never going to get through this book. And, uh, and I took it home and I started it that night. And it was, it was just like, I, it was, I just fell into this book. It was unbelievable. I just, it swallowed me up and yeah, it had such a huge impact on me. Loved the characters, I loved the setting, loved the car. And the car in my mind was even meaner and redder than it was in the movie. And it was mm-hmm. it was kind of like getting like a a secret glimpse, you know, of a uh, you know, you've got the movie that everybody's seen, but I I felt like I was getting a privileged viewing of this 
secret movie that nobody else or very few other people had seen. Certainly the kids in, in my school had like a sort of behind the scenes of Christine and, um, you know, what these characters were really like. And, mm. and, up, and I, I, like I said, I'd been writing stories for, for a long time up until that point, but, you know, really sort of crappy little stories. But when I read Christine, to answer your question finally, um, that was when, <laughs> that was when I said to myself, I want, I want to do this too. I, I want to be able to take the reader and, and basically drop them into my world and give them an experience that, you know, they, they're not going to find somewhere else. And, and I started taking right, you know, the, my writing a little bit more seriously. I was obviously 15, 16 years old, however old I was, it just wasn't a very good writer at that point. But I, that was when the ambition kicked in. And that was when I thought to myself, I want to get published. So I started writing stories and sending them off to, um, magazines to begin with and then agents um, publishers and yeah and that was when it started for me and and I really became hooked on the idea of of being published meanwhile I went from Christine to Cujo I think to Pet Cemetery, and I went through all of Stephen King's library of books which was about you know 14 15 strong at that point and um, mm. and with each book I read um, I became more and more determined to, to you know, get published, and um, yeah, it became a bit obsessional, and uh, it's still an obsession, actually. <laughs> so you were lucky enough to do Stephen Beauties as well, which is a Stephen King. Yeah, yeah, the uh, yeah, that's a that was that's a surreal thing, right? To to sort of grow up as a, as a Stephen King fan and to to, uh, to enjoy his work so much, mm. and then suddenly to be in a situation where you're adapting his work. Uh, and it was great. You know, I met Chris Ryle, who's the, uh, who's the editor-in-chief of IDW and had been for many years. He's, he's uh, stepped down recently, but um, I'd met him at a convention in Texas back in 2011, and we hit it off. Great guy. And we just, yeah, we just clicked. We were like old buddies. You know how that can happen. And and he said, you know, we'll, we'll get something going. Let's let's do let's work together. And it was just really a question of finding the right project. He put my name forward for a few things over the years, um, and and they didn't quite pan out. We, we came close through nobody's fault. Sometimes it's licensing. Sometimes it's um, you know people have a change of heart or whatever. Um, I know I was down for the X Files, the reboot of that in comic form, um, and it and I. You know, went to Fox, I think, or whoever who did, who decided who they wanted, and I didn't get that particular job. And at the time, I was crestfallen because I really wanted to do it, but yeah. um, I realize now it was like the best thing. But so Chris, Chris has always been um, looking out for me and and wanting to find the right uh, comic work for me. And uh, at the same time, Owen King um, became read a book I I wrote called Westlake Soul, and became something of a fan and a friend. And we would have, you know, email exchanges and talk on the phone quite frequently. And then when Sleeping Beauties came out, Owen called Chris Ryle and said, you know, I'd really like to see this as a comic. Do you think it's got legs? And Chris said, yeah, I, I, you know, I think it does. And, and Owen said, I was thinking maybe we could get Rio Ewers to write it. And Chris, you know, was straight on board with that because he'd been waiting for the, for the right um, project and, and that's how that happened. Yeah, Chris emailed me and said, "This looks like this is going to happen. Are you interested?" And 
I said, hell, hell yeah, you know, great. But it, what a, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Every, and I had no real comic experience up until that point. I'd, I'd written a 12 pager for Chris, um, zombies versus robots thing, but that wasn't, you know, that was getting my toe wet. It wasn't really jumping into the whole thing. Um, and it was, it was a fierce undertaking because, uh, Sleeping Beauties, have you read, have you read Sleeping Beauties? I haven't, unfortunately. No, it's that's fine. It's but it's a big, it's a big book. It's seven hundred pages, full of characters. Yeah. So many characters in this book. It's a great, great novel. Um, I'm a big fan of it, um, and was before I even heard about the comic happening. Um, but mm. I, Chris said that you know it would have to be uh, 10, 20 page issues, and I immediately like in my head I'm doing the math. I'm thinking, God, how am I going to take a seven hundred page novel? And turn it into a 200 page comic so it was challenging to say the least but mm. incredibly rewarding and and yeah it's been a great experience it really has as a stephen king fan but it also is a writer you know, trying yeah. something new you know so 2009 so you obviously had a few short stories out and you, you know, sent your short stories away 2009 was that your first kind of proper published novella was mama fish a few things happened at the same time and I'm trying to work out if that was the first I did. I think the first thing I got accepted for publication was a story mm. called Everdead, which was a, a short novel. And that was published by a very small micro press somewhere down in the States. Can't even mm. remember the name grave, grave tales or something. Can't even remember it, but they didn't, they didn't pay me for the book. They were supposed to, oh. but they, they but didn't. didn't. And, uh, <laughs> So, um, but I think the first one I actually got payment for was, was Mama Fish. That was a novella by Shroud Publishing. And yeah, they did a, you know, they were publishing uh, sort of up and coming writers of that, of that time. And they put out a good product and the, the, uh, the publisher there, his name was Tim Deal, a great guy, he lives in the UK now. Um, and was a big, big supporter and a big fan back in those early days. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to him for him. Mama Fish is uh it's a novella that I still point people towards even today as a, as a good place to start with my fiction. I, I think it's a good little story. Um, and it was definitely nice to actually write something and, and get it published, and but more so to actually be paid for it. <laughs> I'm a big fan of getting paid for stuff. Yes. <laughs> getting paid is a good thing. <laughs> Don't want to do it for free. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then you got picked up by PS Publishing. Yeah, well, that sort of happened at around the same time because with Everdead, the vampire story I was talking about, um, I knew nobody with this tiny press. I knew nobody would read it, and I thought to myself, "I've got to get a, I've got to get a heavyweight blurb here. I need someone to read this book and blurb it to at least put it, mm. begin to put it on on you know people's map." Um, and Facebook had really was just starting to find its legs at the time. And I had previously uh, friended Peter Strau, a uh, fantastic writer, and I'm a big fan of his. And so I, I, it was a ballsy move, but I wrote him a message on Facebook and said, just gave him the lowdown. I said, listen, I've written this book. No one's going to read it. I'd really appreciate it if you could take a look and maybe, you know, maybe give it a blurb if you think it's good enough. Didn't even expect to get a reply. Um, but sometimes, you know, you've got to take a chance. And uh, he replied within the hour and said, I'd love to take a look at it, you know. And uh, 
and I sent it off to him. I packaged, printed it all off and packaged it up and sent it off to him. And and he gave me, still to this day, the best blurb I've ever had. I don't think he read all of the book, to be fair, but he read enough of it. I mean, he may have done, but I just get the feeling he probably read the first 50 pages or so. Um, and, <laughs> but that was enough. You know, he, 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 he saw there was talent there and he gave me a blurb that was... It just knocked my socks off, particularly at that time, you know, and it was exactly what I needed. And I didn't need it to sell that book, but I knew I could use that blurb to open up the doors. And the first thing I did with that blurb was I wrote to Peter Crowther at PS Publishing. And I'm a huge admirer of Peter Crowther and and the work that PS Publishing put out is, you know, in the small press is second to none. And, um, and I, the, the, the email I, I wrote to him was very short and uh, t- to the point and said, Yeah, Peter, um, you know, something along these lines, uh, I'm a writer, um, I'd love to publish with you, here's what Peter Straub says about me. And I, and I you know, gave him the blurb and again, within an hour, I think Peter Crowther wrote to me and said, show me what you've got. And I sent him a story called Old Man Scratch, which again was a novella and I'd written it a year or so before. And it blew Peter away and he called me, you know, he called me up on the phone within an hour of reading it and, uh, and said, I want, I want to buy this. And what else have you got? And um, that was, that was the beginning of, of, you know, bigger doors being opened and, and much better things happening. Good old, the two Pete's, you know, we got Pete Crowther and Pete Straub. So I owe the two Pete's everything. <laughs> <laughs> They're my boys. Always start with Pete. Love them. <laughs> yeah, you can't go wrong with Pete. Good old Pete. Hi guys, it's Mark here from the Snakebite Horrorcast, snakebitehorror.com, and Buddy Goodreads. Really hope you're enjoying the episode today. I'd like to bring your attention to a brand new supporter of the podcast. Uh, they are Abominable Books. Uh, it's UK's best horror and thriller fiction book subscription service. They bring the world of horror and thrillers to your door every month for two brilliant prices. It's all the magic of a haunted bookshop summer straight to your door each month. Basically gives you a brand new horror or thriller title, a luxury snack made here in the UK, a mystery second-hand book, possibly haunted book. And you also get one of our death features magazines like Black Static, Ghastlies and Hellbore, bookmarks, drinks, some surprises or two. It's such a great subscription box and they are an amazing set guys so head over to abominablebookclub.cratejoy.com there's even two different tiers of subscriptions you can go for in here so head on over to either get a full guts or a bare bones edition of the box let us know what you think of the box and give those guys support get back to the show I mean, PS Publishing was huge. Yeah. I mean, I remember, because people know, know the story in the podcast, I say it most weeks. When I used to work at Waterstones, um, we were one of the stores that had one of the biggest horror departments. And oh, cool. we had a hell of a lot of PS Publishing titles in there. And some huge names came out of that, especially if you're a horror fan. You know, a lot of where I kind of started was uh, Leisure and PS Publishing and Cemetery Dance and, you know, mm-hmm. all, all those kind of publishing houses so yeah it's it's it's, uh, it's a good little publishing house good, good place to start really really good place to yeah and you know they there was pete who discovered joe hill and um mm. he's given a, a leg up to so many writers that we know and read today you know tim levin and sarah pimber and 
Um, you know, they published a, an early novella of Sarah's called Language of Dying, which won the British, British Fantasy Awards, one of my favorite novellas of all time. Um, yeah, you know, I think, and I could be wrong, and you may have talked about this with, with Tim, but I think um, the first novella Pete Crowther published was Tim's novella. Um, I can't remember what it was called, but I think I think Tim was one of the first authors on their roster, mm. and something he's very proud of. Um, but yeah, they they they're such a great publishing house, and still to this day putting out really fabulous material. And I'd love to do something again with them. It's just finding the right the right thing, you know. But I I love mm. Pete and Nikki and everybody at PS, and I'm sure one day I'll be um I'll be you know publishing another short story or something with them. Yeah, they're they're, they're fantastic. So. Let's segue into your second bloody good read. Okay, yeah. So we did Christine. They talk a lot about Christine, but very important book to me. Um, and and, and, secondly, and a brilliant film. It, it is my it is my favourite Stephen King film, actually. I, well, I, uh, so, I should have said earlier, but it's, it is King film. <laughs> it's so good. It, you know, as, as adaptations go, you know, it's it's. Uh, mm. I don't think it's up there with Shawshank, but it's. Oh god, it's so fun! It's such a fun movie. Um, okay, book number two. This is probably—I bet this has been on your um, on your podcast many times. Cormac McCarthy's *The Road*. Yes, uh, indeed. <laughs> oh my god, what a book! I get chills thinking about this book. Haunting, powerful, brilliant, beautifully written. Everything I want in a novel. You know, it's it's. Uh, you know the the economy of the book and the the language the the such amazing visuals in the book and obviously the writing is just out of this world it's like nothing you you, you know, when i first read the road um probably 12 years ago now i felt i felt like i I'd, I'd landed in a different kind of literary sphere um i'd read mm. you know dozens and hundreds and hundreds of books in within you know around not just horror books but like uh, mysteries and thrillers and you know even romance books and classics but this felt like I was in entirely new territory it was it was a complete uh, head spin for me as to what you could do with a novel what you can do with language um, and the, the journey of the book, the journey of this father and his son crossing this post-apocalyptic America was so grim and so real, you know, like you felt you had to sort of dig the dirt out from under your fingernails every time you put the book down. You know, you can almost feel, hear, feel the, the ash and the, and the smoke getting into your lungs, you know, when you open the book up. Uh, just, mm. yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's one of those books that, you know, I think people try to to replicate um, Cormac McCarthy's style. I've seen other writers try and do it. That sort of staccato, drumbeat almost feel to the to the to the prose, and mm. I think Cormac McCarthy just makes it look so simple. But I don't think he's even trying. It's just so natural. It just flows. It feels like it flows out of him, and um, you know, it, it's just obviously the haunting details of the book the subject of the book leave their mark but you know i picked it because i really feel that the language left to this day you know i remember phrasing from the book and, um yeah just so so many of the great visuals uh and 
the language just resounds to this day so deeply inside me. And um, yeah, it's, it's a book I'll pick up probably every two or three years and probably will do for the rest of my reading days. So a lot, a lot of people have mentioned uh, his, his work. I know Craig DeLouis picked Blood Meridian for one of his choices. Yeah, I read that one. But... Yeah, that's a great book. Yeah. yeah, that's another book that feels, you know, yeah, that's the, I believe that's the one where they're um, sort of traipsing the, the, across the desert, you know, the, 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 the Mexican desert or wherever it is, I can't remember. But, God, you can feel this, you know, you can, you're breathing in the sand and you can feel the sun on your on your, the backs of your hands while you're turning the pages. So vivid, amazing, really. Yeah, I... I um, but he does it so effortlessly. That's the thing, you know. It, it's not like he's tr- necessarily going into detail. I mean, a massive detail here. It would be, you know, maybe one very short, you know, five-word sentence that instantly draws the exact p- picture he needs to draw. He doesn't waste any time with, you know, overly describing anything. It's one sentence, boom. But that picture's in your head, and it stays there. It sits deep. And, and meanwhile, you know, the, the story's sort of moving on. And it's the same with the road, you know. His, you know I can still see, you know, he's the, you know, the father and the son pushing this shopping cart down the road and you know, pushing it through the ash and the snow and the skeletal trees and the blackened shapes of buildings and everything. It's just, you know, the ash in the air, the ash sort of lying on the snow. So visual, and but so effortlessly done. Really strong fiction. Fiction that, to me, like I said, it was the head spin of it. It was the fact that I'd never read anything like it before, uh, anything quite so. I mean, I've read, read a lot of sort of literary style novels and big fan of Graham Greene's books. But this was entirely different and uh, all the more wonderful for it. Yeah, I highly recommend this one to anybody who hasn't picked it up. But then it's, a, it's like, you know, uh, to use a UK um, expression, um, it's a Marmite book. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. you're very divisive. Some people love it, and then you've got some people who really don't like it. They don't like that writing style. They don't like that sort of um, staccato, you know, bam, 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 you know. But uh, I and I get it. I, I probably wouldn't argue with anybody who's who say that this this isn't a book for me. Um, but the fact that it, it, it is a book for me, um, you know, makes it you know all the more special in a way because. Either I'm in tune with the author, or the author was in, totally in tune with me. So you get that yeah. that connection, which is something you know in my fiction that I always want to try and connect with the reader. You know, you're definitely not going to connect with all of them, no matter how good you are. You know, and Cormac McCarthy is extremely good. So um, yeah, just a just a fabulous fabulous book. All of Cormac McCarthy's books are great. A very big influence on me. So your from your novella you go to your first novel, which is The Forgotten Girl. So class as paranormal thriller, did they, is it more the publisher kind of pushed it as thriller or was you aiming it to be a thriller in the first place or was it trying to be horror? I'd written, um, there are a couple of novels between uh, like Mama Fish and, um, and the PS publishing stuff. Um, there was a book called Westlake Soul, um, which is a, uh, was just recently republished by, SST publications, but that originally came out in 2012. Okay. And there was another novel called Point Hollow. The reason they're not on my website or I don't talk about them very much is because they're out of print and very difficult uh, to okay. find. Um, Westlake Soul, I, I 
I still talk up because it's probably my most well-known book. And but that's and it's also it's it's a book I'm extremely proud of because you know you talk about you know the road being like nothing I I'd read before. Uh, Westlake Soul was like nothing I'd written before, and 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 I think a lot of readers have the same sort of experience when they read that book. Certainly that's what I've been led to believe through letters I've received, emails, and, and through reading the reviews. So that book mm. definitely holds a special special place in my heart. Um, the Forgotten Girl was my first novel with a major New York publisher. And that came in 2017. It was published by St. Martin's Press, part of Macmillan. And, yeah, you know, it was... Yeah, I, I didn't really, I wasn't looking to sort of, you know, market in any particular way. I didn't say, you know, when I was involved with, you know, pitching this book to editors, I didn't sort of say, oh, this is going to be a, a thriller, but with supernatural elements. I, it was basically, hey, here's an idea, and, mm. you know, I think it's going to be a great book. It's and that's pretty much it. And I, yeah, this is what this is the this is the this is the book I want to I want to write. And what do you think? And and they they were the ones who decided to market it as a thriller. Um, but it is definitely it's not a straight thriller like um, Loader mm. on Fire. It has supernatural elements, and uh, you know it was in line with everything I'd written at that point. Uh, everything Loader on Fire is my first novel that that has that's completely devoid of anything supernatural or paranormal or otherworldly or monstrous. Um, it is a straight-up action thriller, but The, the Forgotten Girl was a, about a, a girl who could steal memories, and uh, it follows the fate of um, Harvey Anderson, who uh, wakes up to find that this girl has been you know, erased from his, his mind, and, and he still loves her. Um, yeah, and, and he wants to find her. Um, yeah, there's obviously more to it than that. <laughs> I'm trying to remember uh, how how the book starts and how he gets up on that track. But uh, yeah, it, it starts off with him getting beaten up by these guys who are looking for this girl, and and, and he's saying, "Look, you got the wrong guy. I don't know. I don't know who this is." And then he realizes that you know he lived with her for five years and that they were romantically mm-hmm. involved. And then obviously he wants to, and then he still feels something. The hook. I think that and probably what attracted the publisher to, to it was, um, you know, the idea that you, you can erase a memory, but you can't erase an emotion. So he loved this girl, even though he couldn't remember who she was. Um, and it was that love that he had for her that sort of sent him out on this, this quest to, to find her. This, mm-hmm. um, and it sounds, you know, quite romantic. And it is, it's very romantic, but there's, there's a lot of, uh, uh, action and, and violence and all of the other things you might find in my novel along the way, but it has that paranormal edge mm-hmm. because she obviously is a essentially a supernatural being. You know, she can delete memories at will. It was a fun book to write, yeah. Because, like you're saying about um, books and covers, I, I do have a soft spot for covers, and I love that cover. <laughs> oh, great! Yeah, cheers! Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, the the North American cover is great, um, but then Titan book, uh, Books published it in the UK, and their cover is great as well. Similar, but um, yeah, both Titan both have very amazing cover designers. Actually, they we we, uh, we get a lot of Titan authors come on on yeah, podcasts, yeah. and every time it's I love the cover of that. <laughs> oh yeah, 
yeah, they and they did Halcyon as well, and that's actually one of my time favorite covers. Uh, like, yeah, yeah, they they do great covers, very distinctive as well. You can kind of tell a Titan cover just just from a Titan book, just from looking at the cover. Do you know what I mean? And we we know we have a good relationship with Titan as well. We know uh, they've got some amazing horror authors over there. Especially some new, some amazing new up and coming authors. Um, yeah, I love I loved working with Titan. I, I, you know, really good people. They treat their authors well, and uh, mm. certainly have a lot of friends within um, their their sort of publishing stable. You know, Tim Levin and Mark Morris. They've been real champions of the genre both in the UK and and in the US. And um, yeah, I, I and I, I maintain a close relationship to them even now. You know, I, they send me books all the time and. I'm uh, very grateful to them because they're always good books, always great reads. So then after Forgotten Girl, it's Halcyon next. And that was, Halcyon was my second book with uh, with St. Martin's Press. And uh, that that was about a, an island in the middle of Lake Ontario where people could go to escape the, um, I don't know, the woes of, of everyday life in, in America. But of course, you know, the, the island isn't everything it's it's cracked up to be and things turn bad and things turn bloody in, in a hurry uh yeah it was it was another book that was uh, incredibly well received great reviews publishers weekly star review yeah but the uh yeah it just didn't sell that book didn't for, for whatever reason didn't sell even when titan did it it didn't do very well which surprises me a little bit because i thought it was pretty strong but that's the way it goes sometimes Good book, though. Check it out. <laughs> no, no, definitely. Again, the premise for that one is one that I would really, really kind of enjoy reading. So it's one that is definitely on my list. One that was probably read. one of the hardest books I've ever written, but also the most rewarding because it's just one of these books where, you know, you say, Christ, how am I going to do this? How am I going to tell this story? And, and, mm. and you, know, you know, you have these ideas and you want these things to come together. And, Making the pieces fit and making it come together and, and in a way that worked, you know, like I said, it was so hard, but really rewarding. Mm-hmm. Really loved the, uh, I was very happy with the final, um, you know, the finished uh, product. And, uh, yeah, like I said, the reviews, the reviews have been great for it. And I'm still very fond of that book. And I, I hope people are still out there picking it up and, and reading it, whether it's in libraries or bargain bins or wherever the hell it, <laughs> you'll find it now. But it's, it's, it's another book that definitely holds a special place uh, for me because uh, it was just such a journey. It was a hard book to write, but ultimately incredibly rewarding. So I'm going to say right now to everybody, go out and check out Halcyon. Go read it, go yeah. review it, and get some uh, get some eyes on that book. So Thank you, my let's friend. go to your... That's okay. I, I, that's why you're on the podcast. I'm here to plug away. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go to your final bloody good read. Yeah, well, I, I probably... I bet no one's ever done this one. And again, you know, I, I, I picked not necessarily my favorite books, but books that have had a huge impact on me and that are important to me. And this mm. third and final book is it's uh, Autobiography. And it's okay. uh, Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. And, okay. Um, Interesting one. Okay. Yeah, it's not a it's not a, a horror novel. It's not. I don't know if, if you that's how you define a, a bloody good read. But uh, yeah, it, definitely. I mean, it's going back to kind of the film, some of the books that we have been picked before. We've uh, <laughs> we've had a, had a good 
strange mix. We had uh, 127 hours was was recommended once, and um, yeah, Power of Now was also recommended. So yeah, no, that fits into the uh, bloody good. Well, we now we've got <laughs> Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run, and uh, chosen this book. I, obviously, I'm a I'm a, a big Springsteen fan. I don't think you'd pick up a what is this 600 page um, autobiography if you weren't a fan. You know, Springsteen is just such a great wordsmith, and he tells, as a as a storyteller myself, and as a fan of stories, someone who gravitates to stories. I think that's what I've always loved about his music, because his mm. the characters, the the landscape he portrays in a lot of his music is so dark and so believable, and his characters are also flawed and real. And you know, there's you know, growing up in the UK and and you know, really wanting to sort of, you know, it's almost like a character, feeling like a character in a Springsteen song, you know, like I, I grew up in a very working class environment and I was the, you know, the creative uh, one in the house and, and nobody really understood me and the fact that I wanted to be a writer. I was, I was, and, you know, in the, I worked in a factory and nobody understood my artistic pursuits there. They all thought I was dreaming. And it, you know, felt, and then I listened to, to Springsteen, and he seemed to sort of get me. And a lot of his music was kind of a way out for me, and I could identify with a lot of those characters that he used to sing about. So I've always known him to be a great wordsmith and a great storyteller. And then reading his actual story, and you know, some of the ghosts that he encountered growing up in New Jersey, and then you know, on the Jersey Shore, and getting into bands, and then. You know, the success, you know, coming when it did, you know, his first two albums were essentially, you know, flops musically. His record company didn't really push them at all. It was only when his third album, Born to Run, came out that, that things really fell into place for him. Um, but even then, you know, he was battling depression. Um, he, he was going through so many um, issues with his family and his, his dad and, you know, bandmates leaving yeah you can expect that kind of thing from any kind of rock star i would i would think but you know it was just great to to get this his story from someone whose storytelling i've i've admired for a long time and the other thing about this book is it's just so well written you know you perhaps don't expect that from a rock and roll autobiography and i've read a lot of them um but this it feels like literature you know this it's just so beautiful the, the, his wording and his phrasing uh, is inspiring as as a as a fan and as a writer i don't expect anybody who isn't a springsteen fan to go out and pick this book up but it's um yeah so i don't expect anybody who isn't a springsteen fan to go out and pick this book up or to get from it what i got from it but yeah it was just such a reward in reading. And it felt like I was journeying with a friend because I've been listening to his music since I was a kid, really since I was, you know, started reading, you know, Stephen King books. And, um, yeah, he's, he's a, a paternal figure, I would say in my life. So it was, uh, it's a very important uh, book. And, and I, I've also got the audio book as well, which Springsteen reads himself. And, uh, and that's something I, I dip into for comfort frequently so yeah a bloody good read for sure awesome awesome i do like different books on this podcast i don't always all be horror i like to expand the uh well, recommendation you know so I, I think that's a good recommendation. 
I knew I wanted. Yeah, I, I didn't want to pick. It's hard to pick your three favorite books. How do you pick your three favorite books? You can't, right? It's it's, it's an unfair no. thing to ask. <laughs> it's a, so I picked it's, three books yeah. that I felt, <laughs> and I will. Yeah, yeah, I just couldn't, and uh, and so I picked the three that um, I I knew that the road would have been probably mentioned several times, and or maybe even Christine too, because I. It seems that everybody asks, you know, it's their first Stephen King book. You know, it's the first one they bought. This or Pet Cemetery, right? That seems to be what they all say. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, they've all, they all hold a special place in my heart. And they, I'm not sure if I were to take my top five favorite books, if I could, you know, if I had to whittle it down to five. I'm not sure that any of these three books would be even in that top five, but... In terms of the impact they had on me as as a writer and as a person, then they are all up there for sure. And I'm yeah, great reading. Yeah, yeah, the kind of books that make you happy that books exist. <laughs> <laughs> and there's so many books, and, it, and like I said, it is so hard to pick um, your favourites. Yeah. It really is really hard. Because there's several that I could have picked from my top three um, that changes on a daily basis, but. Uh, yeah. yeah, and you, you, yeah, you kind of forget. You, I'm not sure if people remember the book or if they remember the time of their life while they were reading that book, mm-hmm. or it being a particularly difficult time or a particularly good time, or the some of the feelings or the experiences that the book gave them. Um, mm. You know, I don't. There are, you know, when we think of our favorite books, are we are we thinking of the actual book, the 350, 400 pages, whatever it is of that book, mm-hmm. or are we thinking of Audio you know the other emotions? Yeah, yeah. So, and and those things change, right? And you look back on certain times in your life, and and uh, and your perspective of those times changes too. Um, and certainly, there have been books that I considered to be among my favorite books, and I've gone back to them, and I thought, oh God, you know, what what did I see in this? It's still good, but is it really like you know my favorite? And it's crushing, you know. He's, <laughs> you don't want to do it. Mm. So, the 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 really good books. I never, I never go and revisit, and that's the reason why. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think there's a, you know, we we grow as we grow as people. Um, there's, I'm a big fan of um, it by Stephen King, and mm. the first time I read that, I was close in age to the kids in the book, and mm. and uh, when I reread it, I was closer in age. In fact, a little bit older in age than the adults in the book, and it was a you know, still a great book, and I'm a big fan of it. But it was a it was a completely different experience. It was like it was it was it was like reading it with a different set of eyes, you know. And um, I, I enjoyed it, but I enjoyed it in a, in a different way. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it, it, I think in certain circumstances it's safe to revisit, but in others, you know, maybe some of those uh, old paperback horror novels I used to read and devour. I'll tell you, I've read a few of those pan books of horror, again, as an adult, and oh my god. Yeah, some of those stories were really bad. <laughs> so I'll, I'll never go back to the point of horrors, so <laughs> but I had a, ma- right. had a massive influence, influence in my kind of growing up in horror. But no, you did not read that. My all-time favourite bad sentence is from um, one of the stories in the pan books of horror, and I'm not even sure which one. But the, the mm. sent I remember I don't remember the story, but I do remember the sentence. And it is uh, the journalist's grin was a tribute to loving dental care. <laughs> and it's just it's, oh god, it's just such a fantastically bad sentence. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, just, I think I roared with laughter when I read it, you know, like probably not when I read it when I was a kid, but when I read it as a, you know, 20 something year old man, I, I roared with laughter and uh, it stuck in my mind. The journalist's grin was a tribute to loving dental care. <laughs> God, yeah. The pound books of oh. horror. Oh, dear. Your new book. Ah, yes, here we go. Tell us a little bit about the new book. Yeah, so uh, Lola on Place, it's a straight-up, uh, balls-to-the-wall, high-octane action thriller. Uh, it's, uh, it's about Lola Bear. She's um, a former mafia enforcer, um, proficient in you know all kinds of weaponry and martial arts. She's a real badass, and she's, uh, she's lured out of hiding um, in a, an extremely cunning way by by a mafia boss, by a mob boss that she had tried to kill uh, 26 years before. So now she's older and she's slower. The reactions aren't, aren't what they used to be. And um, she's, you know, she's not as strong, so she has to overcome these physical, emotional obstacles, um, she, you know, in order to sort of survive the day, but also, you know, to, to save her family. And, um, yeah, and then... It is, you know, it, it is about Lola, but it's also about Brody and Molly, who um, are lured into this um, this web of, of um, mystery and intrigue and uh, deceit, um, and and they're being used as, as pawns to try and draw Lola out of hiding. And uh, it's it's more the sort of it's more Brody and Molly's story. They're brother and sister. Brody gets into some trouble. And in trying to get out of trouble, he actually he goes, you know, deeper down down the um, the rabbit hole of uh, hell and damnation. Basically, he goes, he does go through it, and um, yeah, it's every the way everything comes together is I, I, it's one of those books that's kind of difficult to talk about because you don't want to give too much away. But um, yeah. yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, and it's been. You know, God, the comparisons, you know, Long Kiss Goodnight, I've heard that, Killing Eve, Kill Bill, John Wick. Essentially, I wanted to write that kind of high-octane action movie, you know, like that John Wick-style movie, but but put it in a book to see if I could get away with doing that in novel form. And, um, and you know, I I think I managed it for the most part. There's a lot of action in this book, and... Uh, the, the the thing with those John Wick movies, as much fun as they are, is that they're you know they're not really grounded in in reality. They're, a lot of it's fantasy and escapism, and mm. obviously contemporary thrillers do need to be grounded in reality. They do have to be plausible, otherwise you're going to lose the reader quickly. So it was taking that formula and making it believable uh, was ultimately what I was endeavouring to do. And um, well. You know, it's out now, so the, the readership will tell me whether or not I, I managed to. Certainly the early reviews have all been incredibly stellar. And, um, yeah, that's incredibly rewarding. So, yeah, Lola on fire. It's a, it's a stick of dynamite. Awesome. Go out and buy it now. It's out now. We will be out now by the time the podcast <laughs> So it's out yeah. now. Go track it down. Local bookshops if you can or, or Waterstones, Amazon um, in the U.K., in the US, wherever your bookshops are, <laughs> I don't know over here. Yeah, yeah. it's available. Yeah, wherever books are sold, it's it's available. Yeah, in the UK, um, you 
you'd probably have to order it and they and they get the America's it, 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 I didn't get a, a UK publishing deal with it so but they would just order in the US version so that's you know, same book no big deal Amazon <laughs> do it well on Amazon. <laughs> yeah that's usually the quickest and most convenient way for, for most people yeah thank you so much for coming on the podcast what are you working on um, I have just finished my second novel which will be with um, the second novel with William Morrow um, and that I handed that in a few weeks ago so I'm waiting to hear back from my editor on that in terms of um, you know notes and stuff so obviously we got, you know, there'll be work to do on it yet because obviously you know when you finish a book there's still a hell of a lot of work to do on it yeah and so I have been taking a little bit of time just to sort of recalibrate and recharge the batteries I've been working on a, a short story I mentioned Ever Dead earlier earlier which was the the novel the vampire novel i published and never got paid for well uh there's a german publisher who's actually gonna gonna publish in germany and uh, they asked yeah yeah so i did finally get paid for it um which is great um and the publisher there is great guy and he's asked he asked me if i could perhaps do like a, a short story just something exclusive for the special edition that he's going to put out in Germany. So I'm working on that. And yeah, so that'll be good. It'll just, it will, I don't think I'll publish it anywhere else, but um, mm. because I like the idea of it being exclusive to this edition and, and uh, mm. but yeah, it will be a, a German exclusive. So weird to be writing a story that, um, that probably will never be published in, in English, but um, you know, <laughs> it's something to do while I'm, yeah, I've got the next novel planned as well, so I'll be hoping to start that one very soon. So again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been amazing chatting to you. Oh, um, great chatting to you too. Yeah, so, I could do this all day. Talk books and movies. Yeah. This is my thing. Hey, it's great movies and books. That's what we're here for. <laughs> that's why I run yeah. free podcast. <laughs> and what a great job you're doing! Stellar work, my friend. Stellar work. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <It's, laughs> you haven't heard the film podcast. It's not as good. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Where can so where can people find you? Well, best place. I mean, I'm on Twitter, and uh, you know, uh, yeah, look for me on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, and my website is www.riouus.com. Dead simple. And yeah, that's where you'll that's where you'll find me on on the internet. Um, and uh, yeah, come follow me. We'll, we'll have some fun. For me, you can find me over on Twitter at Bloody Good Reads and on Instagram at Bloody Good Reads. Again, thank you so much for joining us here on Bloody Good Reads. I've been your host, Mike Goddard, and I'll see you next time.